I'm Kiana, and I'd like to welcome you to Toronto Nature Now, brought to you by CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto and the Toronto Field Naturalists. The Toronto Field Naturalists are a volunteer-run, nonprofit nature conservation organization connecting people with nature and wildlife in the Toronto area. Today, I'm talking to Vanessa Ling Yu, who's here to talk about ghost and dark kitchens and farm and food justice. In 2013, Vanessa founded Cater Toronto, a Toronto nonprofit neighborhoods-based network for the continuum of food workers with a mission to cultivate better social and economic outcomes by connecting people and food in ways that are diverse, dignified, and delicious for all. Cater Toronto provides racialized and or newcomer women that are seeking to advance their careers in the food industry through access to commercial kitchens, trainings, and supports as well as feasible and feast-able market opportunities. While farming and food services are notably difficult industries, there are significant challenges such as high costs of entry and additional barriers faced, especially by youth, women, queers, seniors, differently abled newcomers, and racialized people. Cater Toronto helps by building on strengths, creating inroads for inclusion, and promoting prosperity in ways that are grounded in community benefits. In addition to the work of Cater Toronto, Vanessa draws on her various personal and professional experiences, including an MSHC in health promotion at the University of Toronto and an MA in anthropology at the University of Chicago to provide tangy tours and talk about injustice of local food systems in Toronto and beyond. Here's what Vanessa has to say. Hi, Vanessa. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. And today you're going to talk to me and the listeners about ghost or dark kitchens and farm and food justice. Mm-hmm. So my first question is, is could you give me a quick overview of the kitchens that businesses are permitted to use to sell food in Canada? Sure. Um, so across Canada, it's generally the same, but each province and territory has slight differences. But in particular, if you're selling food, and that means money is being exchanged, um, the majority, the greater majority of uh, people need to have a certified commercial kitchen. There are a couple of like small items or items that don't have to be produced out of a commercial kitchen. And those would be generally things that are very salted or sugary. So jams from the farmer's market, something like pickled with vinegar or salt, and it would have to be at a farmer's market. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually have a follow-up question. So does this rule apply to like maybe small businesses that sell food out of their own homes? Absolutely. There's tons and tons of people who do this, but it's not allowed. Ah, so what would they have to do to, I guess, get permission to sell these food? Well, you know what? I should go back to say that there is, at least in Ontario, a way to certify your home kitchen, but it's very, very rare. And there's lots of reasons for this. But just because it's made at home doesn't necessarily automatically mean that I I hesitate to use the word illegal, but technically it's not legal. But the majority that say they have a certified kitchen at home are usually lying. 
but it's all available online. Basically, the parameters would be, number one, you would have to have clearance from the neighborhood because technically, if you're a food business, you'd have a lot of loading in and out, um, which can be disruptive with zoning. Zoning is another topic. There's certain sink requirements, like hand-washing sinks, but also dishwashing sinks. There's guidelines around sterilization and depending what you're producing, like venting. And those would be the same for like, you know, restaurant kitchen or something like that. But you can imagine there's certain reasons why, um, you know, the neighbors could be really upset or your neighborhood might not be zoned for business because it would be disruptive on top of the, the food safety guidelines. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. I, I guess I never realized there was like permits you need, but it makes sense that there is. And so my next question is, what are the key differences between ghost, dark, commissionary, community, and home kitchens? Some of these words are a little bit newer. And so the definitions kind of vary. So in Canada, we tend to use the word ghost kitchen. And I know a lot of people, there's a lot of confusion, like, there's even a brand called Ghost Kitchen. Uh, so it is relatively new. Um, in other places in the world, they call them dark kitchens. So we might kind of cluster those together. And so I'm just going to kind of go through ghost and dark for a moment. So ghost and dark kind of connote or give this imagery of like something possibly bad. I, th I think for a lot of people, they think, you know, some dark imagery around that. And essentially what they are is a commercially certified space that somebody can rent and um, use to produce food for sale. Uh, and you might be wondering, like, what's the difference between that and a commissary kitchen or a community kitchen? Uh, we did already cover home kitchens. So commissary kitchens are not new. And those two are used for rental purposes. And community kitchens actually can also be certified for commercial use. So if we cluster ghost and dark together and commissary and community, there's slightly different routes. Um, the key distinction between the ghost and dark versus commissary and community would be that they relate to some of the new models of doing business. And so sometimes even ghost and dark are called cloud kitchens. And I like to relate this to um, Airbnb or landlords. The investors in these kitchens generally and majority wise, they, they're investors and they're trying to absolve themselves of responsibility. To contrast that, commissary and community kitchens have been around a really long time and they're ways to share a common space and maybe equipment. You know, it's not necessarily required, but there's a lot of like sharing of lessons and maybe cooking techniques, jokes, laughs. Uh, maybe help with one another. And those commissary kitchens or community kitchens are generally, they might be like commonly owned by whether it's like the government or a neighborhood or a collective. And the kind of the foundations behind community and commissary kitchens are different. Whereas ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens and dark kitchens, I would say that like, you know, they're drawing on this idea and also the need for commercial kitchens to capitalize on that so that they're able to provide a return to investors. 
Yeah, great. I think you gave really good imagery there. I haven't heard of community or commissary kitchens before, but when you said sharing jokes and help, it's like, it seems like such a fun place to be. Mm -hmm. it, it can be, or it can just be, you know, straight business, but you know, rent is expensive and, or maybe you don't need the kitchen all the time. So it just makes a lot of sense to share resources. Yeah, I totally get it especially with the high rent prices. And so I was actually wondering who uses rental kitchens and why? So there's a range of reasons. Um, I alluded to them earlier. So a rental kitchen might be used by a very, very new business that's, you know, just trying to dabble and figure out, you know, is their business model going to work or are people really going to buy it before they jump into like a full lease of their own? Um, there's others who might be, you know, producing local jams. Like it makes very little sense to have, you know, a five-year lease, 365 days a year, if all of your production is going to be, you know, in, in August. Caterers might use a kitchen because they only have, have like three weddings a year or something like that. Now that is some folks. There's others who use rental kitchens because it might be less expensive for them to operate because they don't want to have public interactions. So they only have a presence on, for example, like Uber Eats or Dine Dash or something like that. And it might make sense for their business model. Um, others who might use a rental kitchen might be producing food for, you know, shelters, or they might be using it because they're doing a workshop, you know, like at St. Lawrence Market, there's a rental kitchen there. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And so my next question is, how do rental kitchens impact consumers as diners? Diners are not really aware of how it impacts them, but it does because it might mean your favorite restaurant that's downtown, all of a sudden, you don't know why, but you can order them delivery from them in Durham region. And it might be confusing, but I think a lot of consumers don't really think about why that's possible. It also impacts consumers. For example, now you can buy like local raspberry jam at your, you know, your convenience store because somebody, a business owner, a food entrepreneur was able to use a rental kitchen. Generally speaking, I think that consumers think it's a positive thing. Yeah, I think it is. From what you've explained, those are the positives. But what do you think are the negative impacts of ghost and dark kitchens on farming and agriculture? Generally, again, the key distinction, some of the key distinctions between the ghost and dark kitchens versus commissary and community kitchens is the business model. So if you can imagine a group of investors, a global group of investors, or maybe Canadian they want a return on their kitchen, right? So that means they're not going to be making it as reasonable as possible to rent. And so the people who tend to be able to rent these ghost kitchens are also in it for profit because they need to be able to pay a pretty high rent so that all of the different parties involved can cover their bases, right? So the people who can afford the ghost and dark kitchens tend to be buying ingredients, maybe having labor practices that are more attuned to the things that can be negative for farming and agriculture and the food industry in general. So if you can imagine a machine that is cutting green peppers or tomatoes, the machine needs to have a specific shape and size of tomato or green pepper. And so the produce that doesn't fit that 
will either get wasted or um, it won't be included. Um, there are fewer workers in there. And generally speaking, some of the larger companies that are more likely to be used in ghost and dark kitchens are buying heavily processed food and just dunking it in the fryer. They might have one person working in there. Um, and also the main investor in those kitchens, like the landlord, they are not responsible for either the food or the staff. So there's low wages. Um, in many regards, it's glorified airplane food that comes out of a bag that's either just popped into the oven or refried. Yeah, um, seems like commissary kitchens are the way to go. I mean, I have a bias. I think that commissary and community certified kitchens are, there's so many benefits and it's not just the food, it's the gathering around food, even if it's for delivery, you know, it's the many things that can happen around food versus behind private walls. Yeah, for sure. And so while we're on the topic of ghost and dark kitchens, how do they impact the food service and hospitality industry? Labor is a huge thing. Um, and I don't just mean cost, like labor is a cost. And generally speaking, we don't value or pay people who work most intimately with growing food or preparing food. So now if you can imagine this dark kitchen that is actually probably in your neighborhood and you have no idea that you now have investors that are absolving themselves of responsibility. It is bad for labor. It's de-skilling because now you have these machines that you just press a button. Um, and then there, you know, some owners will say, you know, labor is such a headache. They're so expensive. But all of the things around food service and hospitality, the warmth, the potential for social and community engagement are now behind like this wall that is literally hidden in your neighborhood and you have no idea that it's there. And we've seen it escalate. It's just grown tremendously during the pandemic and it's going to continue where there's a lot less gathering around food and a lot more automation of food. And so that impacts the incentive to go to restaurants when it's, for some people, it's easier just to do, pick up an app. It also impacts jobs, whether it's like the availability of jobs, but also the ability to start new food businesses, right? If a lot of people are leaning towards delivery apps, then why would you open a restaurant and pay the extra rent? It's also a lot of more I don't have a stat on this, but a lot, I feel that a lot more people are now preparing food at home. And I think a lot of people know better, but it's a challenge that's not only because of dark kitchens, it's around regulation and enforcement and understanding. And I mean, why would you pay rent when rent is so expensive and nobody's really enforcing it? And the options are few and far between to do it with air quotes the legal way. Yeah, for sure. When you were talking about like the price of labor, it actually reminded me of a documentary called Harvest of Shame talking about like migrant workers. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm not sure if I've seen that one. I've seen quite a bit because I do a lot of like food and social justice work. That's what like what I saw in my head. That's all I have to ask. But is there anything you want to add? The, re the topic is Toronto nature, right? The interest in biodiversity and 
reducing food waste and really encouraging people to learn more about like growing and preparing and using the the foods and produce and you know that are around Toronto ghost kitchens are not going to enable that rental kitchens are really a good option for people who are you know wanting to learn how to ferment and I think it's really important I'm the executive director of Cater Toronto. We provide access to commercial community kitchens, business and administrative supports for new and emerging food businesses and feasible and feastable market opportunities. We generally work with racialized and or newcomer women and it it connects to, you know, it connects to nature because people do want to know, you know, what do I do with all these ramps that I found or how do I seed collect and what do I do with those things and and can I do it in a way in a in a community space and maybe we make food too this is very much related to us being able to encourage biodiversity sustainability and connect to nature because although we don't eat everything that's in nature many things we do yes for sure thank you so much for teaching me and the listeners about ghost or dark kitchens and commissary and community kitchens and farm and food justice. I definitely did not know a lot this much about it before. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I'd love to just do a quick plug. We're at Cater Toronto. Cater as in C-A-T-E-R-T-O-R-O-N-T-O. And I will just say a lot of people think of conferences and weddings when it comes to catering. And we do do that. However, according to regulations, catering actually means off site food, food that's produced off-site. So we help food entrepreneurs with making their jam into products that are um, usable and not only usable, but sellable. And at the outset of COVID, our 16 kitchen network shut down. I will say on on a positive note, we are rebuilding that kitchen network. Thanks again to Vanessa Ling Yu for talking with me today. And I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. Anyone out there who'd like to get involved with the Toronto Field Naturalists can visit their website at torontofieldnaturalists.org. Again, that's torontofieldnaturalists.org. You can find Cater Toronto on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Vanessa would also like to mention their workshop series called Swing by the Kitchen and their other series that they have yet to announce. Shout out to Paul Overy, the show coordinator, and once again, I'm Kiana for CJRU, and this has been Toronto Nature Now. Make sure to tune in next time. 